1: Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 106. All right, San Diego Comic-Con, July 23rd, Nerdist Podcast live at 4th and B, 8 p.m. With special guests Matt Smith and Karen Gillan from a little show called Doctor Who that I will not ever shut up about. Details at Nerdist.com. And a slew of Nerdist Industries-based podcasts will be dropping, I guess is the word. Podcast drop. Podcast from Kamel Nanjiani and Allie Baker, who are doing a video game podcast called The Indoor Kids, making it with Ricky Lindholm, the Nerdist Writer series hosted by Ben Blacker, Sex Nerd Sandra, The Todd Glass Show. So keep your eyes and/or ears open for that information in the coming weeks. And now the Nerdist Podcast, episode number 106, with probably one of the coolest people I've ever met in my life, Mr. Neil Gaiman.
2: Now entering nerdist.com yeah you can put it right there so did craig tell you that we got a chat last night I did a show.
1: Yes, I knew. It was all I knew your fault. No,
3: I, <laughs> everybody said no.
2: Chris said. I, apparently, interns have been suggesting me for like years. It um, was. I mean, it wasn't. A, it was not a difficult.
1: Uh, I started recording. By the way, uh, it, it was not a. It wasn't like a difficult. I did the show one day, and when I was coming off I was like, you know, you should have on Neil Gaiman's awesome. I just did a panel with him uh, up at WonderCon, and Craig was like, oh, I like him a lot. <laughs> so are like, this is how. It's just. It's just so funny how. Sometimes things just don't have to be complicated. And it's
3: and also, never listen to interns.
1: <laughs> and sometimes there are processes, and I'm sure you have, you have publicists and you have people that you work with, and there are channels and they deal with other publicists, and it's just like, these processes just become so overly complicated.
2: Well, the funny thing is that I, I've been saying no for so many years to doing um, chat shows. But I, th- I think the nice people at HarperCollins had assumed that I simply wasn't ever going to do them. Because uh, <laughs> you know Letterman used to ask when I was doing Sandman. Really? Yeah, and I, and I, I said no several times because I thought that I didn't want to be more famous than I was. And I definitely didn't want people who I didn't know knowing my face and things like that. Um, but I, I sort of softened when it came to doing Stephen Colbert a few years ago, because that was about the Newbury and it's Colbert, and it was my son's favorite show. And this one, I just thought it was one of those weird moments of I watch Craig Ferguson. I like watching Craig Ferguson because he's a mad Doctor Who nut, and he likes the same things that I do. And this is going to be a really fun chat.
1: Also, he'll just talk to you like a person. Like it's it's not going to be you're not going to you're not going to get stuck on a show with someone who doesn't know you or isn't familiar with your work and go so. Sandman is a guy made out of
2: sand. And you're like, no, it's yeah. not really. <laughs> well, also, I, you know, you don't want to be. I mean, back then, it would very much have been. Um, so, Neil, you write adult comics. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, you know that it can't go to anywhere good, because you're not on it to go to anywhere good. Yeah. You're, you're you're just on it to be the dancing monkey. Mm-hmm. Um, what I loved about the Craig thing is is all of my strange friends, it turns out, when I mentioned that I was going to do Craig's show, they would inform me that they were, you know, his best friend. He has an awful lot of best friends. And, you know, <laughs> uh, I, I had Adam Savage interviewing me the other night in Berkeley. Oh, that's um, great. And, and mentioned after the thing, he said, oh, Craig, I'm going to be doing the show on Friday. You've got to say hi from me and, and stuff. And I thought, Look, this is so weird. And Tim mentioned, and I were having dinner in... Seattle a couple of days ago so that it's like these weird networks of strangely geeky nerdy people who have inherited the earth there's a
1: weird law of attraction well Adam Savage is the reason that I met Ferguson because when we had Adam on like you know well over a year ago we had him on the podcast and we did it live in front of an audience and he and Craig were pals and Craig came down and enjoyed the show and after her, he was like i want to do this and we were like okay <laughs>
2: yeah. but he's just the most affable fun you know he'll riff with you yeah I, I i there was a point last night where he started doing this tentacular impersonation of jamie heineman's mustache oh, yeah. <laughs> and i started asking him whether whether jamie heineman was actually cthulhu and i thought <laughs> <laughs> now it can be revealed you take the most and off i thought husband. you couldn't do this on television with anybody else. No. The idea of going to these places and suddenly talking about H.P. Lovecraft or, or Daleks or... Listen, Ferguson let me take a camera crew to Gallifrey One, which is
1: a Doctor Who convention in Los Angeles. And and we we went as... We went about as deep as you can go down the Doctor Who hole. That didn't sound right. Uh, <laughs> it's bigger
0: on the inside, Chris. It's bigger for
1: network For network television, I mean, you know, like... Yeah, you're making, is like talking about Peter Davison or making weeping angel jokes and are like, you can't do this on any other network show at all. But I, but
2: I think the fun of that is the weird and wonderful thing now about, particularly about the internet, um, are these virtual communities. It's the idea that people who like stuff get to find other people who like stuff and eventually reach some kind of strange critical mass. Mm-hmm. You know, I suspect that if if Craig's show had gone in some of those peculiar directions even 10 years ago, it's not that it wouldn't have worked. It's not that it wouldn't have been funny. It's that the people who would have liked it wouldn't have found it. Or each other. Or each other. And now we're in this weird world where they find each other and they get to tell each other, you want to watch Craig's show. And that... You know, I, I, the thing that's made me happiest on my Twitter feed um, this morning is the number of people actually sending messages to Craig saying, "I've never watched you before, but I stayed up and watched the Neil section last night, and your show is hilarious. I'm going to start watching it." Oh, that's so and great! I, that that makes me happy. There is
1: definitely the internet has created much more of um, a social dynamic that I feel like is more akin to a lava lamp, where you just have these little tiny blobs just coming together and like, and then forming bigger blobs.
2: And the truth is, I discovered Craig Ferguson's show through Mark Evanier's blog. Mark Evanier's News From Me blog, which is, I think, probably it's the only blog that I read through thick, through thin, even when I'm wandering off the internet. I still, you know, and I do it sometimes I'll be reading it daily, sometimes I'll do like a monthly Mm catch-up and just um, go and see what he's posting, but Mark is incredibly perceptive, and it's always, um, you know, sensible, funny, informed stuff about animation, about TV, about what's going on in LA, about occasionally about his plumber. Um, <laughs> I mean, I feel like an idiot. I've but, never read Mark Evanier's blog. I need to. I need to. I didn't know about it. That's but that's why I'm here. I'm saying go and read Mark Evanier's blog. Uh, but he's been. For years, he was fascinated. One of the things that fascinates him is late night TV and late night TV chat shows. And he was somebody I followed through. Rather than ever watch the sort of Leno Letterman war stuff, mm-hmm. I just follow what was going on through Mark's blog. And when Craig, when I noticed that Mark was basically saying Craig Ferguson is the only one I watch, everybody else I tape and fast, fast you know, fast forward through, and I'm not even watching most of them. I thought I have to start checking this out.
1: Well, there's been an interesting, you know, it, if you sort of follow the history of of, tel- of t- late night chat shows or afternoon chat shows or what have you, you know, you see in the '60s, you know, '70s, you ha- you have Dick Cavett who will just talk to people. They will just have conversation. I mean, he basically, you know, Dick kind of sets them up for stories. But you really get a sense of who people. Yeah. You got a sense of who people were. Like the the Betty Davis episode of uh, Dick Cavett is. You is mind-blowing. She's incredible and she gets to talk and it's not segment, segment, segment done, go on to something else. It really you really let it, it let it breathe. And then something happened and it just everything became very commercial, and it was just like, yeah, oh, you got a book. Yeah, here's my book. Okay, thanks for coming on. Here's one joke I'll set you up for, and then get the fuck out of here. And it's all coming back around where guys like Fallon and Ferguson are just like, no, you can talk to people and you can fuck around, and it doesn't have to be you know, well, set you up and knock it down.
3: What's funny about that is that uh, when Tom Snyder was still hosting The Late Late Show and he was kind of being booted out uh, for Craig Kilborn to come in he wrote a huge article talking about how um, he doesn't like the way late night talk shows are going. It's like, he's like, no one's talking to them anymore. They're just setting up. It's just all very regimented. And he, he, you know, he didn't want to have anything to do with the business that was going to continue on like that. And it's kind of funny because he left and then it just, you know, every, every late night show is the exact same, the exact same, the exact same celebrities saying the exact same things about whatever they're working on. And I feel like with Craig is, probably the crux and it's funny that it also happened on the late late show where he brought it back to that tom snyder style of just slowing it down and having a conversation and just like even in his monologues they're just they're they're more real than anything else on late night tv they're not just jokes they're actual stories and actual uh opinions on things
1: well it was interesting because we shot the pilot last night for the nerdist tv show and craig there were just because it's a pilot, you know, there were a couple things and it was incredible and Craig was great. And our special guest was great, but there were a couple like promos that we had to do. And Craig like, we would go run through them once with what was scripted. And Craig was like, Oh, what do you mean? We have to do this again? Like, he's so, it's so funny. You you could tell like, Oh yeah, he just fucking does what he wants on his show. And that's how he stays sane. And it's magic.
2: That was, that was how it felt. And I love the way that it seems to be, Televisions definitely seems to be changing in some ways. And it sort of learning from itself. Um, The idea that a novelist would be on a late night chat show, not actually particularly to plug a book. I mean, I'm on tour, the end of a tour for for the 10th anniversary edition of American Gods. Mm -hmm. That's going to sell lots of copies. And honestly, I didn't particularly care about, flogging it to to Craig Ferguson's audience late at night. I was just there because it's fun. So, um, you know, and it throws you back to to the days when you could actually just have a novelist on late night TV, on a chat show, because they because people who write books, some of us are really good at chatting. <laughs> um, you know, the days when Johnny Carson would have people, the days when Steve Allen, Dick Cabot, these people, you know, Norman Mailer and co. just turning up to yep. to talk. They'd be regulars. And then that changed. And you wound up with, you know, monosyllabic heiresses with perfume lines. Um,
3: <laughs> that smell
1: great. Yeah, well, we were, we were recording this in the building that was built on the backs of monosyllabic heiresses. Making fun. This yeah. is the E building, and it's just like... Every time I turn a corner and I just see a friggin Kardashian poster, I'm like, "What are we doing? What are we doing yeah. but uh I often think of Tom Snyder uh as I feel like he he's sort of one of the godfathers of the podcast dynamic you think so i th- I mean just the idea of just like just talk, talk about your day you talk talk about talk about what yep. interests you like it's more interesting to me now, I mean we all get it. people work on things. And we know, like, oh, you worked on this movie, and that uh, was that director. Like, but I want to hear what people like. Like Neil Gaiman, I want to hear, like, what did you wa- did you watch television when you were growing up at all, or were you were I, you more of a, a book guy?
2: Um, I was probably more of a book guy than a TV guy because my parents weren't into TV. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was tiny, like you know, three, four, five, six, I was allowed to watch children's hour TV. Um and it wasn't children, it wasn't like an hour, it was, you know, 15 minutes of bad puppet shows, watch with mother. <laughs> um, but my grandparents didn't care about that kind of thing. So I'd go over to their place and I'd watch Doctor Who. And that, you know, that, that, that lingered. And I uh, actually discovered the Narnia books through the TV show. They, there was a bad English TV, you know, people mm-hmm. in Man in a Lion co- costume and stuff <laughs> yeah. like that. Um, but that was where I discovered a lot of things that I loved. Um, then we got a TV when I was about six or seven, and I loved TV. Um, Batman was was the big you know the big obsessional TV show. Absolutely. I had no idea it was meant to be funny. I had, I <laughs> had no idea it was anything other. I, I would worry. I would worry every, <laughs> at the end of every same bat time, say back channel thing, and they're, they're, you know, floating off in a balloon, and there is no way they'll ever get down, and I would worry. Because <laughs> I thought maybe this was it. I was young. I didn't understand that they had to be back I until never, it was canceled.
1: When I was a kid, it never occurred to me, as much of a follower of comedy as I was, it never occurred to me that they... That that show was tongue in cheek. I just I just always wrote it off as the '60s. I'm like, ah, yeah. they were weird and avant garde back then. So everything I, everything was just yeah. Weird. I had
3: no idea until I, I caught an episode on uh, late night TV, and it's uh, he says like, hold on, let me get the bat pen, and I was like, bat pen, wait a minute, yes. and then it finally all clicked. Everything clicked. I, uh, it's, just, it's
1: just like the Simpsons where where they, where they, where um, Krusty goes is on the old Batman show, and they're <laughs> on the carousel, and he's like, fortunately, I had my. Bat Carousel Reversal Spray. And then Krusty's like, Jeez, what don't you have in that belt? I uh, was
0: watching this show, Hollywood Treasures, where they auction off Hollywood memorabilia. I like auctions. Uh, and they had the uh, Robin sidecar for the Bat Cycle. Oh, crap. And they brought Burt Ward in to authenticate it. Yep. And he said the only line he would never say that they wanted him to say was, Holy strawberries, Batman, are we in a jam?
2: Which I think is actually one of their better I think that's puns, Yeah. Right? I like it. You know, it's it's right up there with the great line from the original Batman movie. Uh, Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I recently saw a picture of someone. uh, There was a a, a sign for a church that said uh, "Holy Family Church," and then someone just put really big underneath it, "Batman." (laughs) (laughs) Holy Family Church,
2: Batman. (laughs) (laughs) Did you have you watched the have you watched the Tim Burton Batman movie recently? Recently, no. I, I I was at the premiere of all those years ago. Yeah. Um, actually, it wasn't a premiere. I wasn't the premiere. I was at some being invited uh, to screening before it actually opened. Oh, so, that was I, right around when you started doing Sandman, right? Um, yeah, it was a bit before. I, I the first sort of big meeting that I had um, with DC. I was invited. Um, a few days later, to to be on the bus with the DC Comics people going out to Gotham City, which in this case was Pinewood Studios, <laughs> of course, uh, where so um, and we were shown around Pinewood, and um, it was you know Dave McKean and I were there, and we're just sort of looking around very nervously because we're we're the kids, and there's all these people here who mm-hmm. have you know Dave Dave Gibbons is there and John Byrne and these people who, who really write comics, and we're just these kids who want to. And I remember Anton Furst, um, who was the designer, gave us a talked us through their inspirations and their comic inspirations and where things came from. And, and um, he reminded me so much of the comics character, Mr. X, who was this mad, bald, obsessed guy, obsessed with city planning. And so it came as strangely no surprise when Anton Furst threw himself off a building and, and committed suicide and a... Plunging from the top of a building to a parking lot. Oh. Um, some months after, I thought yeah, that that seems very appropriate. He seems, <laughs> like, he seems semi-fictional at the time. <laughs> it's like do he died doing what he loved?
1: Yeah, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> falling <laughs> off a building. <laughs> um, did you? Would you start it with this? So, you, as you love the well, first of all, who was your doctor when you were growing up?
2: Was it? Was it Tom Baker? Uh, no, my doctor was Patrick Troutman. I'm old. Oh, huh? <laughs> I really, I really am old. I, I saw, I didn't see an unearthly child. Okay, um, But I came in for Daleks, the mm-hmm. end of the first Daleks story, and sort of remember it, but don't really remember it in that solid sense of, I I know I have memories that are that. But the first Doctor Who story that I had memories of, um, and I already loved it, were the Zabi, uh, the web planet. And I, I remember being you know, hiding behind the sofa from the Zabi. Um, <laughs> and these weird high voice things called the monoptera and the web planet's the only DVD that I haven't bought and haven't gone back and relooked at because I have these memories of how incredibly terrifying it was. Oh, and you don't want to, and I know that they will go away. I know that I will be going, no, it's clunky puppetry and a man in a giant <laughs> ant suit and stuff. I, I, this, this will not terrify me. So I'm, I haven't rewatched it. That's
1: kind of, that. That's was kind of my thing with Batman earlier as I, I rewatched the the Tim Burton Batman which I thought <clears throat> I mean that was one of those that was one of those movies where I'm like, "Oh my god." And then when the when, you know when the when the the bat plane goes up against the moon, you're yeah, like, yeah. "It was." And I watched it again recently and I'm like, "Oh,
2: it, it just it feels it doesn't it feels very 80s." Yeah. you know your are well, Batman was in the 80s. I mean, what do you want? Sometimes you're allowed not to go back. Yeah. Um, it's okay. And, and the joy for me with doctor who actually has been how much has been really good. And actually the fact that particularly for me with Patrick Troughton Troughton was my doctor. I had that, the thing, that emotional bump that you always get when it's a new doctor. Um, or at least you always get when you're new to the game. Mm -hmm. Um, and William Hartnell, William Hartnell kind of, you know, he was the doctor, but he, right. he was still somebody who slightly scared me. <laughs> I was a creepy old man. He was a creepy old man, and, <laughs> and, and he was testy, and he was grumpy, and I sort of liked him, but didn't really want him to be my grandfather, and I definitely didn't want to go in that TARDIS with him. <laughs> um, but Patrick Troughton came in, and he was the doctor, and he was funny. And he was nice and he was silly and he wasn't taking this whole thing seriously except he was. And he was actually smarter than everybody else and they all underestimated him because he was just this funny man and he'd pull out his recorder and stuff like that. And and yet somehow he just saved the earth from Cybermen again. <laughs> um, and it was brilliant. And he was my doctor. And I remember the the thing that sort of pretty much moved the furniture inside my head in that way that that every now and then there's something you can point to and you can say, this changed me. Mm-hmm. I was not the same person after this than I was before, was the War Games. And the War Games was a ten-part Doctor Who serial. And it was ten parts long because they had no idea what they were doing. They didn't know if they were going to end it. They didn't know um, if it, they were going to cancel it. They really weren't sure where they were going, but they were just going to keep the War Games going, which means that the story was, especially in the middle, absolutely interminable. It's just, you know, <laughs> our companions get captured, they go and get them back. They get captured again. Now you're in some other weird... The command, Were the companions in some sort of plane crash and ended up on an island for four or five seasons? And it then, it yeah. felt like it. It had <laughs> that that glorious sort of this is going to go on forever thing. But then when the story actually came together and suddenly you met somebody who... Identified himself as one of the doctor's people. And you discovered there were time lords. And you discovered that the doctor really was on the run from them. And they could remotely control his TARDIS and control time so he couldn't get away. And then this this marvelous sequence where, you know, they 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 pronounce judgment on him and inform him that he is going to be changing and his face is going to change. I just remember watching that that whole sequence, and going, oh my gosh, this thing that I've been watching since I was tiny. And, and at this point, I'm nine years old. Um, this thing I've been watching since I was three had a big, huge story out behind it that I didn't know and didn't understand, and there were all these people in the background. And it it was huge and wonderful and strange. Although it does make me wonder
1: how much, <clears throat> how much of the things we go back and look at as the canon for Doctor Who. It's like, well, they just did that because some guy at BBC wasn't sure if they were going to continue doing the show. Um,
2: You know, canon becomes canon however it becomes I canon. I guess that's true. And, um, you know, there there are there are lines and jokes and things in my episode that became The canon Doctor's Wife.
1: The Doctor's Wife. I loved it. Oh, thank you. I was so excited. When we did the thing at WonderCon and I saw the clip and then it was just that moment where... Matt Smith, like thousands of time lords, And I'm like, w- w-
2: what?
1: <laughs> like it was just so. I, I mean, I that called, was, yeah. I call, I called Matt, and I, I called Matt Meyer, and I was like, oh my, god, I just saw a clip. Uh, it's the fourth episode of the new series. Uh, Neil Gaiman wrote it. It looks fucking incredible. i mean, like, I was, I felt like, I felt like an old 1930s reporter rushing the to the phone.
2: I love that the thing about that showing that clip that we showed at WonderCon, which is the clip where he he meets the Ood, he fixes the box, he hears the time lord voices, and then they're going off and he turns to his companions and he says, somewhere around here there are lots and lots of Time Lords. And, um, with, the strange thing was I'd met, um, the guys from the BBC along with Mark Shepard and Tony Haynes at Mm -hmm. breakfast that morning and I'd said, by the way, what, what, what are we showing? And they said, oh, we're going to do this clip where, um, the doctor goes and opens the box and sees all the Time Lord voices and says, oh, I really thought I had some friends around here. And I said, hang on, that's, that's the big twist that gives away the entire <laughs> plot of the first half it's of the
3: episode. a good thing you asked.
2: And you're going to be showing that? And they said, yeah. And I said, no, you're not. You are not actually showing that. And I, I emailed from the breakfast table, the BBC, and uh, wonderful Beth Willis, the producer, and I said, ah, and she said, whatever you want, you can you Oh, can that's show. great. And um, I had the episode on um on a flash drive in my pocket. I because know
1: because I you showed it you showed yeah. me the flash drive and well, I was like I wonder how fast his reflexes are
2: <laughs> on that so I took that flash drive in and said to them I want you know play it from here to here and that was that was where they got the scene that they put up. And, and I was really worried that the 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 resolution wasn't going to be good enough for for giant screens but it was fine.
1: Oh yeah, and the crowd, I mean there were thousands of people there. Everyone went Freaking bananas! That was, the, uh, that was the
0: episode I was up last week in my
1: boxers with tears in my eyes. Oh, that, was, <laughs> that the one. was the one. Matt Matt just said last night he was like I was watching Doctor Who last week in my boxers in the middle of the night just crying. And I'm like, which episode? I didn't I didn't realize it was it Doctor yeah. uh, Who. When, when she says hello, when <laughs> they're in the when they're trapped in the TARDIS and she finds Rory's body.
2: Oh, spoiler alert! Spoiler, no spoiler alert. By the time, come on, people. It's it's been out for whatever it is two months now. Yeah,
3: yeah. I haven't. Uh, been able to catch up yet don't worry oh it's all right that's it. no, fine i just uh,
1: that didn't really give anything away didn't. but yeah. it's a fa- it's a fantastic episode and yeah. also just it's such a unique twist on a prominent relationship in the show that's never really addressed that much
2: i i felt so lucky to be able you were talking before about making things canon i got to make it canon <laughs> you did <laughs> Um, you affected the, fu- the future
1: of every episode by uh, creating a specific reality.
2: But I also kind of got to change the past as well. That, that's what I meant about the thing that the end of the war games did for me because it reshaped everything that had happened up to that point. And the lovely thing about doing my episode is now if you go back and there's a scene and there's you know, just a scene in the TARDIS or with the TARDIS in the background or one of those scenes where the, the TARDIS has vanished or you know where he's where he's saying, "Well, I, okay, if I get killed, what'll happen is it's just going to become a police box or whatever." Um, it means something different that once you've seen my episode, the shape of that relationship going back changes as well as coming forward.
1: Yeah, it gives it gives it a soul. Like it, it's like you really. And what's kind of fun about that is, as a as a fanboy. You know, whatever whatever things were never intended originally from old episodes, you'll start writing things in like,
2: oh, that must be this and this and
1: that you know, so it actually
2: well, creates more of the world. You know, and, and the strange thing about that, I mean, is is we're going the the part of the inspiration, one of the things I went back and rewatched and rewatched and rewatched um in in the final writing process was an episode Age of Destruction. From one of the very, very first William Hartnell episodes, where they're stuck in the TARDIS and weird stuff is happening. And it turns out the TARDIS is trying to communicate to them and doesn't really know how, but, but to let them know they pushed the wrong button and it's held <laughs> down. It's trying, it's, a, you know, they're heading back to the beginning of time.
1: Did you feel that um, when they first said, when they approached you and said, hey, you want to write a Doctor Who episode? Are you the kind of guy that was like, yes, I'm so on that. Or were you, or were you, the, or were you more like, oh, they, that, okay, I'll do it. But that's... Uh, no, no, I...
2: You not know, nervous about it? Nervous? I, no, I wasn't nervous. I, I was somebody who had spent um, about a decade at that point. Maybe a bit more. Yeah, more. Uh, almost two decades. With people writing me, to me, uh, when they were doing the Virgin New Adventures, mm-hmm. when they did the Tell Us books, people saying, will you write a Doctor Who episode? Uh, will you write a Doctor Who novel? Will you write a Doctor Who novella? Will you do a Doctor Who thing? And I would say, no, I, I don't want to write a Doctor Who, original Doctor Who novel or, or whatever. But if they ever bring back Doctor Who, I want to write a Doctor Who episode. And had actually back at the end of 2003 just made a phone call to um, the BBC just to say, no, if, if, is anyone doing anything with Doctor Who? Could I, could I maybe get involved or, or do something? Um, just because I loved it and it was, as far as I was concerned, languishing and then I heard no Russells bringing it back and I thought, oh good, it's, it's going to be in good hands. Um, didn't wind up checking it out because I was in the U.S. um, and running around in 2005. And then Jane Goldman, um, who wrote Stardust and Kick-Ass and and the X-Men movie recently, Mm -hmm. um, just said, you would really like this and got me the DVDs. Because they were bringing out the DVDs pretty much as the show Mm -hmm. was coming out in in the U.K. Um, So I played the DVDs, went my daughter would love this. She was 12. And suddenly we had something we could do, watch together, which made it even more fun and more exciting. And then I was going back and getting old DVDs to show her. And we're sitting there watching City of Death and showing her the three doctors and the five doctors oh, wow. because it was a nice way of sort of giving her an idea of, of, of the whole shape Doctor Who. Um, and I was talking about it on my blog and just doing mini reviews and talking about, you know, the... the How moving and powerful it was that at the end of Doomsday, Maddie, my daughter, was watching it with her head on my chest. and, And she got up and my chest was soaked, and I realized she'd just been silently crying with these floods of tears running down her face. That's what Matt watching. would have done
1: if you were, if oh, yeah. you, if you were cradling him. Let's I, watch it. I, I, and
2: I, but I loved that, I, and I, I thought that was so... I thought that something could have that amount of emotional power was just so wonderful, and that it could join the generations. So... I'd been saying nice things. I think I was the first person to call... um a Hugo Award for Girl in the Fireplace, and then for Blink, I'm pretty sure, you know, put it up, and Stephen Moffat got them, and uh, at some point in there, we had some mutual friends, I think Paul Cornell, um, and Paul put Stephen and I in touch, and we went off to have dinner, and by that point, through mysterious underground things, I'd sort of heard that Stephen Moffat was going to be taking over as the, the ood father mm-hmm. and that he would be, <laughs> um, you know, the, the head honcho. So, but I also heard it was a secret. So, we're sitting there having dinner, a place called Barshu, a wonderful Chinese restaurant in London. We're talking very hypothetically and I'm saying things like, you know, hypothetically speaking, um, should somebody... Uh, who did Doctor Who be in a position to ask me, hypothetically, (laughs) to write one. Obviously, I would, hypothetically. Um, And and somewhere around the middle of the meal, Stephen, who is is Scottish and has a marvelously low bullshit factor, just sort of said, look, you know that I'm taking over Doctor Who. (laughs) And I know that you know. So let's just cut to the thing. Do you want to write an episode? Don't oh, you? Oh, Yes, yeah. I want to write an episode. <laughs> it's, like,
1: um, it's almost like the, like the date you're on a date. And you're, you're like, yawn and put your arm around the girl. She's like, you're trying to touch my boobs.
2: Oh my gosh. Uh, okay. It, it was actually that place <laughs> and was really brought home to me. How much that place it was when, um, I ran into Richard Curtis who wrote, uh, Vincent and the doctor and is probably much more famous for four weddings and a funeral and mm-hmm. love actually and things. And who I'd known forever. Um, with Stephen moffat down at the studios in cardiff last year um actually when they were editing vincent and the doctor and richard said so neil he said uh, you know was it it must have been uh, like it was for me with you with uh, the moffat just pursuing you and pursuing you to, try and get <laughs> to write an episode how 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 did they wear you down how did they get you neil I, said, oh, I just said yes. I said, <laughs> just
1: like, yeah, I want to write an
0: episode of Dr. Did,
1: did anything you wrote not make it in, or was it, was it pretty true to what, you know, like, was the finished product where you're like, yes, this is
2: exactly how I envisioned this? Um, huge quantities of stuff that I wrote didn't make it through, but that's the nature of the beast. Um, and mostly, I think it was for the better. Um, the first draft or the first version of the episode that i wrote actually began with um it originally began with amy and the doctor because this was going to be during one of those periods where rory didn't exist um amy and the doctor trying to get to a beatles concert (laughs) and they um they were they were going to they, they were backstage at shea stadium and heading towards the Beatles, and, and and the doctors sort of explaining that he still thinks they should have gone off to Hamburg because <laughs> that's they were really, much much better. That's where you want to see the Beatles. in Hamburg? That's where you want to see the Beatles. And <laughs> Stu Sutcliffe, great bass player, and and really really good at running away from Ogrons. And so you've got all this stuff. And then they turn a corner. They're almost at the Beatles, and the and the box appears. And they run back to the TARDIS. You know, they get the message from the message box and head off. And when the tar- when the TARDIS vanishes, you see a large sign saying that this is actually Wembley Stadium in 1986, and it's Queen. Oh, <laughs> and they would go, they'd been going to the wrong place anyway. Um, and then, and then it was pretty much the same um, for a while. The it was much scarier because separating Amy from the Doctor. With with nephew, who at that point wasn't an ood, he was just huge, scary sort of patchwork creature, um, and nephew and nephew basically playing this horrible, deadly game of hide and seek with her through the inside of the TARDIS. Mm-hmm. So I think it would have been much darker and much scarier, um, and we hadn't got the end quite right at that point too, or at least it wasn't that we hadn't got the end quite right, but the the idea was that it was going to be the episode was where the lodger was going to be. So it was going into, um, the big bang. We knew the TARDIS was going to be destroyed and essentially this was her goodbye to him. So it's much darker. The, the feeling. And and at the end they, they buried Idris's body and they put up a marker and it's just, Amy and the doctor sitting on a hill and Amy is actually kind of slightly traumatized by what's happened. And mm-hmm. the doctor's just sitting there making a daisy chain for her. And and it, it was this... And then when... Basically, we didn't have the money to make it. Um, the BBC had the money to make the lodger. <laughs> so... <laughs> They made The Lodger and my episode got bounced, which was wonderful because by getting it bounced, I now had Rory. Right. And the whole dynamic of the thing changed. Um, Having Rory gave me, well, apart from anything else, it gave me Amy and Rory, which was great. It gave me Rory and the Doctor, which was great. It gave me somebody else's point of view. Um, It meant I could do a whole bunch of very different things. Once we got into the TARDIS with, with Amy and Rory. And some of them got in and some of them didn't. You know, there were there were things that were many of the things were filmed. Um, there were things we just lost. the the the, the Rory and the Rory getting locked in the zero room was my favorite. Um, where he basically House informs Rory that, you know, being in the zero room for more than because it completely cuts you off from any contact with anything outside of the mm-hmm. rest of the universe for Time Lords to rejuvenate um, to recuperate it will actually drive a human being mad within two minutes to be locked in one and then the door closes Ugh. and uh, how he gets out is, is, is glorious um, there was a scene in the TARDIS swimming pool
1: oh that's good. <laughs>
2: which we lost um for um for 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 two reasons the biggest reason or the initial reason was that Karen can't swim oh,
3: oh.
2: really and which i found so ridiculous because i don't know if you i mean you you encountered karen oh yes i have okay you've seen her legs <laughs> i mean <laughs> she does not have legs that human beings have and I think until they tip televisions on their side, (laughs) nobody is going to appreciate what Karen's legs are like. They're very long, right? They are ridiculously long. They they start somewhere almost immediately under her shoulder blades and go down. And and I'm going, how can you not swim with legs like that? All she'd have to do is move them and she would zoom through the water like some kind of motorboat. Um, But apparently Karen can't swim, so they said, can you not do it? I said, well, could I I change it so that it's Rory in the water? And then they said, well, you could, but really we can't afford to shoot.
1: Oh, there, so it's so, so I was like, oh, okay. We can't afford to have Karen's legs
2: shortened and we can't. <laughs> so we lost the whole shortening Karen's legs. Yes. And, um, and the, the, the idea of having a swimming stunt double. And, and, so, and we lost the Hall of Mirrors scene. You know, there were scenes that we simply didn't get in there. Um, but that's, that's the nature of television. It, it's, it's all about time. It's all about budget. Once it was shot, they put together a rough cut and it came in at 56 minutes. So lots of scenes... Um, Uncle and Auntie had lots of scenes that were really funny, spooky, weird, moved the plot forward, and were great, where you got background on what was happening. And all of those scenes went because actually it worked fine without them. Mm-hmm. Um. hmm You had, um, you had a, a, probably my favorite little scene, which is replaced by something just as good is really odd. The, the originally when the doctor and Idris get back to, um, they, they get to where they think there are going to be TARDISes. He says, there's a, you know, it's, it's a TARDIS graveyard, junkyard. Let's, let's go. And they go and they, all they can see is junk. And then Idris points out that obviously all they can see is junk because all TARDISes have their chameleon circuits activated and when they die, the chameleon circuit remains on because you, couldn't, you didn't want TARDISes falling into enemy hands. So right. as far as you're concerned, it's still a bathtub or whatever. <laughs> I and, love a bathtub TARDIS. And he, he has her change things. And, you know, deactivate all chameleon circuits around them. And suddenly all of these bathtubs and washing machines and just bits of junk become high-tech gloriousness just for a moment. And you realize what they are. And then they go back to being junk. And he goes back to reassembling. And they, they assemble the thing out of junk. And it was lovely. And they filmed it. But it was too long. And it could go. So it went. And I had to write that, the dialogue between them where they're standing looking down at the the. Junk Tardis is where he's saying, you know, you, it's impossible. Uh, where she says to him, this is what you're planning to do, and he's saying, yes, but Rory and Amy are still alive, and, and she says, you don't care that it's impossible. You're, this is what you're going to do, and you don't care. And it's a, it's a lovely scene. And nobody ever watches that and goes, oh, I missed the one that was there. And that's how things become canon. They become canon because they make it in, and they survive. It's, it's a relentless... Network television is relentlessly Darwinian.
1: Well, also, oh, yes. There's, there's no question. There's absolutely no question. And, it, and you know, so and to some extent... And I, I personally, I think we're going through a television renaissance. I think there's a lot of phenomenal programming on uh, cable cable television right now. But a lot of it is very Darwinian in terms of, like, well... Listen, you know, if if more people watched this one show, then it it would be on more. And, you know, unfortunately, more people watch the reality show. And that's why, you know, but I think that's that's where we're getting these smaller cable channels that are like, well, we don't have to perform like networks do. So we'll just kind of make the programming we we want to make. Um, but I'm curious to know. Just because, you know, you write in all manner of media, um, the difference between uh you know, writing writing comics, writing a, writing a novel, uh, and, then, and then writing for television. And then the follow-up, qu- the follow-up question to that, Mr. Gaiman, is do you feel like it's important to... Some people think like, oh, I don't, want anyone, I don't want anyone to tell me what to do. I want to write whatever I want. And personally, I feel like it's important to not have complete autonomy sometimes because those sort of roadblocks that television provides kind of force you to think outside the box a little bit. So what do you prefer?
2: I, the truth is all media come with their roadblocks and it's always the walls that that force you to create something really interesting inside the walls. I, the, the only things that I never do for people are the things where they come to me and they say you can do whatever you
1: like. <laughs> It's horrifying.
2: And I never do. Whereas if somebody comes to me and says, Neil, um, we're doing an anthology about cats and William Shakespeare. And uh, it's just stories about Somewhere a cat and William Shakespeare. Could could you do one of those for us? And I go, No, that sounds really silly. And then I'll go home and then I'll go, you know, you could do this really great story about (laughs) Shakespeare. And I go and write it because we've suddenly been given parameters, and the parameters are the thing you bounce off to Mm -hmm. create art. So But one of the ways that I keep my sanity, and I've kept my sanity on this, is by being able to move from thing to thing. So with a novel for example, nobody gets to tell me what to do. It's, as long as I write something of a publishable length, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, as long as I'm not turning in a four million word novel or something like that, really? and demanding that it all be published as, as one thing, um, they'll publish it. It's good. Nobody cares. But it's really lonely. Um, so once I've done that, it's really fun to go off and make a movie. Or do TV or something like that. But when you're doing that, you're suddenly up against weird compromises. And right. they're the weird compromises of what you can create, and the weird compromises of of what reality gives you. And and budget and time, which are the things you're you're always battling. And the fact that somebody can tell you what to do and somebody can say, no, nah, you know, um I know that it's meant to be a romantic ghost thriller comedy but i really was hoping that it would the the whole ghost thing would be a little spookier can you up the ghost quotient and just tone down the romance or whatever and you go oh yeah okay i can that you're the one paying and i and you go away and do it um but after doing that it's really fun to say i'm gonna go off and do something where nobody can tell me what to do and you go back and do a novel or do a poem or, or, or whatever
1: by the way, uh, Ghost Quotient uh, is the name of my specials cover band. Come on, that's a call out to Paul and Storm. You've done,
2: Woodstock. Oh, I've done Wootstock. I've done, How I've done Wootstock. How second great is Wootstock? Wootstock is remarkable. I've done my favorite Wootstock, actually, um, was not the one that I actually went on and did stuff at. My favorite Wootstock was the Minneapolis Wootstock, where I was not a guest, I was not announced. And they brought me on. As a special guest at the the moment in the Captain's Wife Lament, mm-hmm. where it had already been going on for about twenty four minutes, <laughs> and um, <laughs> then they brought me on, and I did a respectable author R, mm-hmm. and then went off again to rapturous applause. And <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was it was just one of those great moments, and and so I got to see all this the backstage goings-on at Wootstock, which actually are the real reason why people do Wootstock. People think we do it because Paul and Storm pay us millions. <laughs> right. Which um, is clearly th- not uh, not the case. Which is really not the case. No. And they think we do it because, um, you know, this this huge audience or whatever. And no, the actual reason we do it is to hang around backstage. Um, it's the conversations that occur between all of these people who've been admirers of each other or have wanted to meet and have never actually had a chance. So suddenly you're backstage backstage making new friends um, and occasionally coming down to the stage to watch Adam Savage desperately sticking tissues up his nose um, to staunch the flow of blood while singing uh, I Will Survive in the character of Gollum. (laughs) Which... That's what it that is what it's really about, Woodstock.
1: It is it is it is all the hanging out backstage and also just never knowing in each city who's gonna be able to go. It's almost like a it's almost like getting a, a pack of plank of um of trading cards. You're like, what, is, what am I gonna get this time? I know whatever it is I know it's gonna be awesome. But those guys are those guys are so great and they've done such a they've done such an amazing job um with the with the Woodstock show. Do you uh, first of all, you do live in Minnesota?
2: I, I live up near Minneapolis.
1: Minneapolis yes. is a phenomenal town for live performance. I've had some of my most favorite shows in Minneapolis, for stand-up comedy shows.
2: They are friendly. They're a friendly audience. They actually kind of, they don't start from a point of view of folding their arms and going, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, we and- just, we reserve that on the West Coast. <laughs> <laughs> well the west coast actually i don't think it's folded arms west coast is is hands deeply thrust into pockets and standing near the exit so if this thing is not cool enough right. you can sidle out and pretend you were never there to begin with
1: you also don't have people in the west coast. the other problem with performing in la is that so many people are performers that a lot of people will just watch and go yeah i would have done that differently like people in minneapolis yeah. just
2: go i'm gonna go consume a fun thing and even you know Minneapolis comedians will laugh at jokes. Yes. West Coast comedians, I, I you know I don't know if you've ever had the horribleness of having to go to a comedy show with comedians. Oh, but you sit constantly. there in the audience and they go, and, and a really great joke comes out and they all go, huh, <laughs> and that's the noise they make and and they smile a little bit. There's a huh, mm-hmm. and it's. And it's and it's this weird filing process. You can see it went in there, and they're deconstructing it, reconstructing, going, yes, that worked. That was yes, good. Uh, the, the, that.
1: yeah. The verbal equivalent is, oh, I see what you did there. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I got okay, yeah, I got it. But yeah. I'm a laugher. Like I, I I'm a laugher because I love comedy, and I still, it thrills me to be to to be surprised by like you did. Uh, you did the thing at the Savant Theater last last night with Patton, and Patton is one of those guys who, every time you see him, he's got twenty new minutes you've never seen before. And it constantly surprises you, Paula Tompkins is another one yeah. and um how, how did it go last night with Patton by the way
2: Patton um is amazing. Patton is really, really funny, and he he was it was like schizophrenia because on the one hand, you have Patton desperately wanting to be patton oswald stand up comedian comedy legend mm-hmm. and on the other hand, you have Patton desperately wanting to be Patton Oswald. The guy who got his copy of Season of Mist signed by me in nineteen ninety-one <laughs> in experience and who then came and saw me with with Brian uh, him and Brian were, were at the stinking rose in nineteen ninety-nine when I did a reading for the comic book Legal Offense Fund. He got his stuff signed and and, and this slavering, drooling, ecstatically <laughs> happy fanboy. Fanboy makes good news so at eleven. <laughs> So what I did, uh, we, we were, the interview was, was enormously fun. Um, but I thought, you know, I know Patton now well enough to know that my experience up on that stage, he, he's going to make me work for it because he's incredibly funny and he will always go to strange and inappropriate places. Um, so let's see if I can actually take advantage of that and use that and have some fun with that. So I got... Um, Zelda Williams, Mm -hmm. who is a wonderful young actress. Um, And Patton. And I said to them before the show, I said, you know, Zelda, will you come back? I'd I'd like you to actually um, take part in something. And Patton, when I do my reading tonight, it's going to be an L.A. specific reading. It's going to be a scene from American Gods. It's actually set in Los Angeles, in Hollywood. And um, I want... I will do, we'll make it like a full cast audio. It'll be like the thing, it, it'll be actually where the, the recent full cast audio of, of American Gods began, which was Kevin Smith interviewing me and my glorious wife, Amanda Palmer. Oh, I love um, Amanda Palmer. She is Amanda fucking Palmer. Amanda fucking Palmer. Um, and Kevin interviewed us for his star fucking, I think it was star fucking smodcast. Um, and I i have to do something weird and mad at the end so i forced them to read it's the the scene at the end of the first chapter of american gods where a prostitute and a john (laughs) are having sex and she gets him to worship her and he slowly disappears into her vagina and never to be seen again um it's one of those scenes that you write at the beginning of a book where you're going you know Anyone who doesn't want to read this should stop now. It's at the end of chapter one. It probably nothing weirder will happen for the rest of the book, but you have no excuse to get halfway through and say that book was just weird and bad things happen. Chapter one, word 15 is fuck. End of chapter one, man disappears in the prostitute's vagina. Stop now if you have a problem.
1: That's Red Fox used to open his shows in Vegas that way. He'd come out and he'd go, "Shit, pee pee, doo doo." If anyone has a problem with that, get the fuck out. Exactly. <laughs>
2: that was that was that was my my that was how I started that book. Um, so I had Patton and and Zelda reading the part of the prostitute who is the goddess, uh, the Queen of Sheba, actually Dolores, and and the John and uh, Patton did. Amazingly well, um, although at the point where he's actually worshipping her, he started bouncing up and down on the stage like a small, demented rubber ball. And then he decided to continue his acting by, by slowly hiding himself behind Zelda's chair, getting lower and lower and lower, and then vanishing down beneath it. <laughs> Into her um, so it was... Um, I think I can safely and comfortably say that it was a dramatic performance, the like of which nobody in the 1,500 seats uh, sitting there in the Saban Theater has ever seen before, yeah. nor, <laughs> nor perhaps will ever see again. Probably the first uh, disappearing vagina
1: uh, into a vagina bit at the Saban. At least in, 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 in its history. Done. At least that, yes. Well, it's yes. Beverly Hills. So that's true. In the building, you, you we'll don't. say. But outside the building, we don't know. Um, and, and then what...
2: Are you allowed to talk about anything that's going on with American Gods? I can tell you a little bit. There isn't an awful lot to tell yet. Um really it it's one of those there's, there's weird stuff that always goes on in Hollywood and one of the weird things i have discovered is that you have people who um earn essentially 100 bucks a pop and normally in like you know contract departments and mailrooms and things like that by letting places like TMZ and the various gossip sites know stuff that's going on sure and they get their tips so The truth about the American Gods HBO series that we're doing with Playtone is we weren't planning to say anything at all, except um, about, you know, two months ago, somebody did a huge and fairly accurate, there were a few things they got wrong, but they did a huge and fairly accurate leak shortly after HBO had given us a verbal green light. So now contracts are being put together. We're almost at the end of contract. And somebody at Playtone gave an interview in Singapore, possibly not realizing that if you give an interview to somebody in Singapore, it will be around the world in minutes. We do have that
1: ability now where information uh, can get everywhere, it it, turns out. Pigeons. Exactly. (laughs) Carrier
2: pigeons. So as a result of which, um, there is a lot of stuff out there that the public knows about. So I'm sort of going, well, I don't really feel that weird... Talking about things, I'm not going to tell anybody anything that isn't out there already. Yeah. Um, Bob Richardson, the the most wonderful person with a camera in pretty much the history of movie making. This is the guy who got his Oscars, um, who shot Natural Born Killers. um, You know, lots of Oliver Stone stuff, lots of Quentin Tarantino. um, Snow Falling on Cedars has an amazing, you know, IMDb list. Is going to be directing. Wow. Um, and he has ideas about the way that it looks. And he's also, you know, written a first draft script, um, which is, you know, it's solid. But he wrote it originally as a movie script to show us that he wanted to do a movie. And so we're going to have to slow it down a lot. Are you, um, are you impatient at all? I mean, it seemed, you seem like, like a
1: fairly patient guy in terms of eh, it's been 10 years and and you have to go you have to wait for all the attorneys and you have to you know
2: I'm completely patient all of this stuff I get very very patient on um because I don't care <laughs> I, I, I is that I, the secret yeah actually in some ways it is oh I care about the right things I think I like don't what have, well I'd like to see things be good that, <laughs> that is that's, that's, that's unheard that's, of in the entertainment business Caroline, the um, the, gorgeous, the,
1: gorgeous movie, and I, I and also kudos to your includement uh, inc- inclusion.
2: What's
3: not?
1: Your including of John Hodgman. I I, I I mashed up include and Hodgman together. I got to the end of the sentence before I, the meet.
2: There there are, there are no words in the English language that are not actually improved by mashing John Hodgman. <laughs> somehow anything! Under, you know, good Hodgman morning.
1: Good, good oh. Hodgman morning. Um, that was the know, best Hodgman orgasm I've ever had in my life.
2: Exactly. It, it's just you, you just want to mash Hodgman into your sentences just as you want to mash him into your breakfast cereal. Yes. <laughs> you know, mash him into your life. you well, want, Hodgman's not just, just for like,
1: breakfast anymore, Neil.
2: I would like... <laughs> I would love Hodgman as my personal butler. He would be great. I just like to get up and, and have Hodgman glide in and say, <laughs> good morning, Neil. Here's your newspaper. And so-and-so is on the phone. I would say, thank you, Hodgman. <laughs> uh, say, You're very welcome, sir. And he'd glide away. Only only his mustache is currently scary. It, the, the mustache is, is a little bit scary, but Hodgman to me is essentially
1: what... He's like the embodiment of the bat computer in my mind. Like, he, like, I'm not, conv- I'm not convinced that he's not actually a hologram that just possesses the sum total of human knowledge.
2: Yes. And it's not the old fashioned sum total of human knowledge vis a vis true things that actually exist. It's a much better sum total of human knowledge <laughs> because it's from, from Earth Hodgman. Yes. Um,. The one where hobos still rule, and <laughs> it, it's it's and where Hodgman knowledge is so much finer than any other knowledge anywhere. It's very Hodgmanian. I've completely forgotten what we were talking. Oh, Caroline. Um. So I signed the contract with Henry Selick to do that film in uh, February two thousand and one, and I think it was nine years to the day before. Um before the film premiered. Wow. I, I, but... Eight years to the day. Um, but I was perfectly happy to wait because what I wanted was a good film. I really loved Henry Selick's work. I was probably the only person on the planet who had noticed that even though the film was called Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas, Tim Burton was simply a producer on the film <laughs> and actually it was directed and from all the interviews, had been built from the ground up yeah. by Henry Selleck.
1: Hollywood branding.
2: Um, yeah. It would only ever upset me when we'd put from the director of The Nightmare Before Christmas on things and people come up to me and say, <laughs> why are you trying to sell this as a Tim Burton film? <laughs> and I go, <laughs> no, actually, Henry Selleck directed The Nightmare Before Christmas. And they go, Really? <laughs> why is it called Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas it was just sad <laughs> like um, trying to challenge you like no I think I know how this all works but I was very very happy to wait as long as it took to get it made and get it right and have it with Henry because I would rather have something that I can be proud of and love and say yeah it's great um, than I would have something that came out and was terrible that was always my position with Sandman i I I've seen Sandman scripts come and go. I've seen Sandman directors hired and fired. I've seen it, it, you know, be a priority at Warner's. I've seen it be forgotten. Currently, they're looking at doing it as a TV series, and and I hope it happens. But what I say to them all is, look, I would much rather no Sandman was made than a bad Sandman. Mm-hmm. It's that's nice and easy. It's simple. That's that's my. My equation on this—I want it to be good. You saw the so, Matrix call up the name Morpheus. Whatever, mm-hmm. you know the, the 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 Wachowskis are huge Sandman fans, clearly, and uh, and they and um, they actually it was it was a tribute and a really nice one. I I I, I never mind when people tribute me, as long as they're upfront about it, and you know, one of the reasons I. I think kevin smith is so awesome is because he cheerfully plundered things like good omens and and sandman um for oh god i forgot this, the name of the movie what was the the angely one dogma. dogma of course thank you um for dogma and he thanked me at the end on the credits and i thought awesome He's great. Kevin's
1: one of those guys that just like, if he likes you, he just wants everyone to win. And he he thinks there's room. I mean, I fucking love Kevin Smith. He's a, he's a sweetheart.
2: And, you know, so I, I love the people who are willing to just sort of, you can rip me up as much as you like if you say, yeah, and I got that from Neil. Because I figure that the moment that I've written something, the moment I put something out into the public domain, it belongs to the world. Well,
1: and then you won't mind that I'm uh, releasing Chris Hardwick's United States Demigods, uh, inspired by Neil Gaiman.
2: I'm very much looking forward to it, especially if there is a god called Hodgman who turns up in the middle of of sentences or perhaps... No, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. This is a very interesting philosophical Hodgman
1: question. Hodgman, uh, uh, god or the devil? Is Is he pure good or is he pure evil? Or is he neutral?
2: Ah, you see, this is where you make your fundamental mistake, Grasshopper. Let us go back to the the ancient Hodgmanist koan. (laughs) If you see Hodgman on the road, kill him. (laughs) And I think what they were trying to say (laughs) is that we will all see Hodgman on the road because Hodgman lives within each one of us. Every time somebody says, I'm a Mac, and I'm a PC, mm-hmm. Hodgman will be there. Mm-hmm. Every time you, you walk into a huge building and you see a hastily scrawled hobo sign <laughs> mm-hmm. on the door letting you know that someone on the third floor will give you food and a shower, mm-hmm. <laughs> Hodgman is there with you. And every time you turn on the Daily Show and Hodgman's not on, Hodgman is still there with us in, in some kind of spirit, informing The Daily Show, just as Hodgman is here with us right now. I might be Hodgman. You, you, Chris, might possibly be Hodgman if you grew a mustache. That's Um, right, which I can't do very well.
1: No, I can't
2: either. I can't do a Hodgmanian
1: mustache. I know you have to go in a second. I just want to ask you one more question because as one of the great writers in our culture and also someone who worked with Alan Moore, and and I know we have a lot of of people who are writers or creators who, who listen to the podcast... Is, is there any way to sort of encapsulate, um, you know, is, uh, you, a little bit of your writing process, or something that you learned, or things that you think are important, or you know, when you constantly get that question from people at cons, like, "Hi, I'm a young writer, and do you have any advice? What do I do?" I mean, I know it's an impossible question to answer, one, no, but it's, but it's do you, one
2: that I get asked all the time. Do it's you, one do, you I do
1: answer? Do you write every day, or do you just write when you're inspired, or what's what's what have you what have you learned?
2: Well, if you only write when you're inspired you may be a fairly decent poet, but you will never be a novelist because um, you're going to have to make your word count each day and those words aren't going to wait for you whether you're inspired or not. So you have to write when you're not inspired and you have to write the scenes that don't inspire you. And the weird thing is... Six months later, a year later you'll look back at them and you can't remember which scenes you wrote when you were inspired and which scenes you just wrote because they had to be written next where the process of writing can be magical it can there are, there are times when you step out of an upper floor window and you just walk across thin air and it's it's absolute and utter happiness mostly it's a process of putting one word after another it, it's like out in, in the Peak District in England um, and up in Scotland, there, there are people who make dry stone walls. And they've been making dry stone walls for generations. And the way they make these, these dry stone walls is they have lots and lots of rocks and they put one down and then they put another one down that fits and they put another one down that fits and they put another and they know how to do it. And somehow they create these walls that are absolutely stable. And they put, just by putting one rock down after another, and eventually you have a wall. And that's how you make a novel. You put one word after another, and then you repeat. So when people come to me and they say, I want to be a writer, what should I do? I say, you have to write. (laughs) And sometimes they say, well, I'm already doing that. What else should I do? And I say, you have to finish things. Yes. Because that's where you learn from. You know, you learn by... by finishing things if there's other advice there's there's so much advice you can give you know young writers particularly writers who want to work within a certain genre because you can say look read within that genre to understand what people are doing but then go and read outside your comfort zone if you love if you love a certain kind of movie and you want to make hollywood action thrillers go watch other kinds of movies watch documentaries Watch arty foreign Cross-pollinating films.
1: the creative process. Go, yeah,
2: go go see the other stuff. Find everything you can. If you like books and you like fantasy and you want to be the next Tolkien, don't read big Tolkien-esque fantasies. Tolkien didn't read big Tolkien-esque fantasies. He read books on, on Finnish philology. And, <laughs> and you know, and that's... You go and you read outside your comfort zone. Go and learn stuff. Hit primary sources... And then the most important thing for anyone once they get any kind of level of quality at the point where you're ready to write and you can write is tell your story. Don't try and tell the stories that other people can tell because any starting writer will, you always start out with other people's voices. You've, you've been reading other people for years. You're going to tell the kinds of things that you've been doing, but as quickly as you can. Start telling the stories that only you can tell. Because there will always be better writers than you, and there'll always be smarter writers than you. And there'll always be, you know, people who are much better at doing this or doing that. But you are the only you. You know, Tarantino is, you can criticize everything that Quentin does, but nobody writes Tarantino stuff like Tarantino. He is the best Tarantino writer there is. And that, was actually the thing that people responded to they're going this is an individual writing with his own point of view well that's and i think
1: that's excellent advice for any creative endeavor and it's very and that's you know bill hicks said a version of you know just work on your own voice because then you've cornered that market
2: yeah exactly there will always be people out there who are you know, there are better writers than me out there. There are smarter writers. There are people who can plot better. There's all of those kind of things. But there's nobody who can write in your game and story like I can. And how do
1: you break through the wall? You know, like the wall. You're sitting down and you're like, I know I have to put one word in front of the other, but I can, that there, I can actually see a fucking brick wall in front of my eyes because...
2: For me, it's always been a process of trying to convince myself that what I'm doing in a first draft isn't important. I remember the incredible liberation of the point that I moved from typewriter to computer because I was no longer making paper dirty it was just sort of notional it was like imaginary I was writing these words but they didn't matter and then a decade after that I remember the the liberation again of suddenly going I could write in notebooks because it isn't real until I put it I keyboard it mm-hmm and I still, actually, one of the things that I still do over and over is just write in notebooks, get, you know, big old moleskins and things, or, and just just handwrite, because it's, it's not real. Um, but one way you get through the wall is just by convincing yourself that, that it doesn't matter. Nobody's ever going to see your first draft. Mm-hmm. Nobody cares about your first draft. And that's the thing that you may be agonizing over, but honestly whatever you're doing can be fixed and you can fix it tomorrow and you can fix it next week for now just get the words out get the story down however you can get it down and then fix it
1: well Neil Gaiman uh, you have been an incredible guest uh, this was a wonderful nerd fantasy for me and, uh, and thank you for being you know thanks for making time for us I know you're, you're, your schedule's been tight out here but, uh, and thank you uh, to your assistant cat are you okay? you were coughing a little bit earlier oh. everything okay? All right, great. You look you look fine. Like oh, you got a
2: hairball. she's cat she must have had a head nice thank you uh,
1: but thank you so much for being here also uh, you know I just I'd want to throw out the American Gods 10th anniversary is uh, edition is out uh, yes you uh, now. should buy
2: it whoever you are listening <laughs> to this please buy it um,
1: <laughs> please buy it Any, anything else uh, come, uh, on the horizon anytime
2: soon um, there's loads of things on the horizon but I can never remember what they are I should I should have a sort of yeah list we'll of follow you on Twitter plug. Neil yeah. himself at Neil himself I, I was going to say pl- follow me at Neil himself and, uh, and go and you know buy my wife's music yes like happy
1: i love the video for map of tasmania ps <laughs> fucking great okay great that
2: was i th- i think that is the best use of a merkin in any video ever <laughs> and and it's the, on the,
1: my it's on my phone
2: the thing that made me peculiarly happiest about the map of tasmania video and I actually kind of i have to say i kind of like um perez hilton he's always said very nice things about me uh-huh. and stuff but but i was sent the link to his comments on the map of tasmania video which were. <laughs> Basically, you know, somebody going, ah, girly stuff, ah, this is horrible, this is the worst thing I've ever seen, and I thought, you know, it's just that thing of girls with bird's nest merkins, and, and merkins of the scream, and weird dangly forests.
1: Oh, there's like a, there's like a Dumbledore beard in the video of... <laughs> It is amazing, (laughs) amazing. Well, thank you so much for being here. And then, uh, you know, when I'm in Minneapolis performing, I'd love to, uh, you know, please, let's grab a coffee or something. I would love that. Uh Thank you so much. Neil Gaiman, uh, Matt and Jonah were here. Nick was uh, silently in the background working on his computer. Uh, He just waved. And uh, that's it. Enjoy your burrito, everyone.
3: That was awesome.
2: Now leaving Nerdist.com.